Welcome, welcome tonight to this uh, Middle East uh, Center uh, presentation by Benedetta uh, Voltolini, who is uh, uh, now a Marie Curie, hold on, uh, no, sorry, Marie Sklodowska Curie Fellow at Sciences Po in uh, uh, Paris, uh, used to be a PhD student here in the Department of International uh, Relations. Uh, has just published uh, a book on uh, uh, lobbying and uh, EU foreign policy uh, in the Arab-Israeli uh, context uh, and tonight she's going to talk a, uh, a bit I hope about uh, uh, the book uh, and also about uh, her current uh, research. I am your chair, Federica Bicchi, I'm an associate professor in the Department of International uh, Relations. Uh, what's going to happen is that Benedetta is going to speak for roughly half an hour, yeah? yeah? And uh, after that it's going to be uh, over to you for questions, uh, comments uh, and anything that you might like to uh, raise within obviously the academic boundaries uh, uh, that uh, characterize the LSE. But Without further ado, Benedetta, would you oh, like to start? Thank you, Federica, and thank you everyone for being here, and thank you for the, uh, I thank you also the Middle East Center for giving me this, this opportunity to, to present my, my work on um, lobbying and framing in new foreign policy. Hold uh, on a second. Can you hear, can you hear me or okay. should I speak? Yeah. Okay. Is that good? Uh, <laughs> so the, today's presentation will be on lobbying and framing, and I will draw on the case study of uh, Israel and uh, Palestine. Uh, <coughs> so how how I have uh, I will so the presentation will be organized in three main parts. First, I will explain why lobbying in new foreign policy. Uh, then I will move about this link between lobbying and framing, and I will give you some ideas about the Israeli-Palestinian case and the framework that I use to understand framing processes in the uh, new foreign policy towards Israel. And, uh, and then I will also discuss uh, where my current research is going and some ideas that I'm trying to, to develop. And I'm very happy to um, receive also your, your feedback on this uh, new project. Um, so to <coughs> lobbying in new foreign policy. Well, actually it's a very uh, under uh, research topic because probably most of you when you, you think about new foreign policy towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you think about that, Mogherini or you think about Merkel going to Israel for a business trip. But, uh, but actually, there is also another side of this story that is based on a lot of interest groups, a lot of actors that are trying to shape and influence what is going on and what uh, European foreign policy is about and what policies the European Union um, implements. And this is not something so unusual if you come from a public policy perspective in which I mean, the, the role of interest group is, <coughs> is, uh, is studies and it is emphasized. And, uh, and even in the European Union, we know a lot about interest group and how they try to shape uh, EU policies in general. But we don't know much about what happens in, uh, in EU foreign policy. We have some anecdotes by journalists that tell you, for example, um, that uh, there was a massive... <coughs> Uh, pressure from the, for example, pro-Israel lobbying, trying to shape the votes uh, of the European Parliament on a certain uh, resolution or on a certain agreement. Or we might uh, see uh, the campaigns of the B uh, BDS uh, movement, the Boycott and Divestment and Sanction movement. So we have some example of that, but uh, we don't really know much about it in, 
uh, from an academic uh, perspective. And, um, and I would argue that actually um, these, these actors uh, matter a lot, even in foreign policy, although the, an idea is that, well, European foreign policy is high politics, so it doesn't matter. We don't need to study interest group. No, w we need to, because they are extremely active and they really try to, to shape what um, EU foreign policy uh, is about. And because of this, um, uh, and because of this, that's where my, my 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 interest for lobbying in new foreign policy uh, started. And the case of Israel-Palestine is um, salient in new foreign policy because the European Union has a long um, has, has a long pol um, uh, position on the Israel-Palestinian um, conflict. It has uh, developed a position um, over the decades and um, and. Um, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has always been on the agenda of, of the European uh, Union. Um, so, <coughs> what, uh, so this is the background, basically, of, of, the, of the current research on lobbying and, and, and framing. And, and why lobbying and framing? Um, well, lobbying and framing because <coughs> lobbying in the European Union is informational lobbying. So it is about providing information, providing um, expertise. It's not about paying someone or giving money or providing material, uh, material ben uh, benefits. And, <coughs> and the, um, the literature on lobbying um, is also uh, looking a lot now at the, um, at the issue of framing. Framing meaning how these groups try to describe or shift or focus the attention on one specific issue. They try to uh, f um, shift the attention of policymakers on specific issues so that then this might influence the policy outcome. Because you can say that uh, framing is a process of selecting, emphasizing and organizing aspects of uh, complex issues and then you provide an evaluative um, analytical criterion that then steers policy. And, um, and in that sense, I, I, I think that it's also important to see how these framing processes work in European foreign policy and how this framing also shifts um, policies. Um, in, um, so basically what, what, what I... I am interested in what I have done was to, to look at policy change in new foreign policy and, and understanding it as a process originating in, in, ideational, in an ideational change in a, as, a, as, a framing, uh, as a framing process. Um, and, uh, <coughs> and because of uh, the, the role that non-state actors also play in this framing issue, taking that from the lobbying uh, literature, um, I, I try to combine the two aspects. So, the study of framing and the study of lobbying. And uh, <coughs> so my, my, my main argument is that um, non-state actors, so interest group, they can be NGOs, business group, etc., play an important role in these framing processes because they trigger, they can trigger these framing processes and they can act, as I call them, as frame entrepreneurs. And by triggering these framing processes, these can also then lead to, to policy change. I'm not arguing that they are, they are the only uh, actor that can trigger these um, this framing processes, but they are one of the actors that we can consider when looking at these, these framing uh, processes. 
And I studied that in the case of EU foreign policy towards Israel and, and Palestine. And particularly, I look at the shift that, uh, um, that happened in EU foreign policy towards Israel that was quite clear with the publication of the guidelines uh, in 2013. The guidelines, um, and I will come back to this case later, but the guidelines were basically a new policy that the European implemented when dealing with its funding to Israel and specifying that the funding in uh, prizes, grants and yeah, funding under other programs uh, has to go to Israel as internationally defined and not to the uh, settlements um, to the settlements in the West Bank. Um, so <coughs> how I um, how did I uh, analyze this, this policy change? So I, I basically looked at policy change in, uh, in new foreign policy as a, as a framing process uh, through which um, member states, EU institutions, define a new understanding of the issue at stake. And, and this then leads to new, to new uh, initiative. And the key elements of this, this framework of, of, um, that I use are taken from Kingdom and from uh, Biki. Uh, work um, and uh, and basically the uh, the idea is that um, change um, and uh, these framing processes happen when actors face uh, cognitive uncertainty when they are puzzled about the interpretation of social uh, of the social reality and they don't know also how to make sense of the information out there and uh, and this cognitive uncertainty can mm, is often raised when the issues are also uh, politicized and securitized. And, um, and this cognitive uncertainty opens up a policy window that uh, uh, basically um, allows to a policy entrepreneur to exploit the situation and foster these uh, um, framing processes so that a new frame develops, cognitive uncertainty is solved, and we can have policy, uh, policy change. Um, and <coughs> sorry, and these um, these entrepreneurs basically act as a broker between the different the different actors that are part of this framing process and mediates and 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 helps to bring about these new these new uh, ideas these new uh, frames. So I I share this this basic uh, this basic framework, but um, but I I, I see it. Uh, a couple of elements in a slightly different way. So, in the case of policy entrepreneurs, in the case of EU foreign policy, um, these uh, policy entrepreneurs have always been considered either member states or, or EU institutions. And my point is that, well, we should also include non-state actors. Maybe they are not policy entrepreneurs in the sense that they cannot act on a policy and they cannot really implement the policy, but they can be a frame entrepreneur in the sense that they can trigger this process of framing. Um, and secondly, uh, when we look at cognitive uncertainty, um, the point is that I think cognitive uncertainty can also be constructed when actors are simply faced by, by a problem by other actors. So another actor can create this cognitive uncertainty by showing a problem from a different perspective. And this triggers this, this cognitive uncertainty. But what I have found in this case study is that you also need some external factors, some exogenous factors that also um, act as catalysts 
and then favor really these framing processes to, to take place and to, uh, and to develop. So um, the, the case basically of, uh, uh, of, you and, uh, of you foreign policy towards Israel. So as I mentioned before, there was this shift, uh, there was this new policy um, enacted in 2013 um, with, the, with the guidelines to, on funding to, uh, to, to Israel and not to the settlements, basically. And, and to me, this was uh, a quite significant policy change because there was a legal instrument that was uh, created and that marked a bit uh, a change in the policy. Why? Because before the European Union has always had a position of uh, not recognition of the settlements, of the Israeli settlements, but this has mainly remained at, declaratory, uh, at the declaratory level. Here with the guidelines, even though they are not as such a legally binding instrument because they are published in, uh, in the series C of the official journal, which is not uh, a law per se, but they uh, explain how the Commission is going to execute the budget and how it's going to implement its policy. So the document is binding on the institution and provides also um, legal effects because there is a link to the financial regulations of the European Union. And therefore, there are also measures to act upon if these guidelines are not uh, followed. And, uh, and my interest was, okay, how do we come about that? I mean, why it was implemented, what happened? And by, under, by, by investigating how we reached this point, it was interesting to see this shift in a frame. So the European Union, um, before, had a frame that was based on what I call a political frame or a conflict-based frame that was based on this idea that, um, and was very much shaped by the Oslo years, in a way. Um, that is, so there is a peace process going on, and uh, we cannot interfere into this peace process, and we, we need to enact positive conditionality and to casual also Israel to remain in the peace process. And so therefore they didn't want to, for example, um, link the Middle East peace process with the bilateral relations that in the 90s were uh, started to develop really strongly. Um, while what happens with the guidelines and the policy that, uh, the, the frame that underpins these guidelines um, is what I call a legal frame, or what is also called a differentiation policy, or a policy of differentiation, which uh, shifts the perspective and says, well, we as the European Union have, are a community of law, and we have certain laws ourselves, and we have to respect <coughs> the commitments that we have in international law and uh, under international humanitarian law, and therefore we need to implement our... Uh, policies towards Israel in respect of these, um, of these, um, of this commitment, of these uh, um, uh, obligations uh, that we have. And uh, this doesn't mean that uh, we, we leave Israel and the Palestinians and decide what their final borders will be, but in the meantime, in our bilateral dealings, um, for us, the, 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 the territorial scope, basically, where disagreements, where our policy will be implemented, will be Israel as internationally defined, so within the, uh, the, green, uh, the green line. And, 
And so to understand how this framing process started, I started to investigate a bit more and I did a lot of process tracing, etc. And it came up that there was an important role of an NGO that acted as a frame entrepreneur over the years. And, uh, and we will see, uh, and I could see a, a process of construction of uncertainty, this, 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 this opening of a window of, of opportunity, and then this codification of, of, a, new, uh, of a new frame. How, how it happened? Um, so back in the 90s, the European Union uh, had signed the, um, an association agreement with, uh, with Israel, which of course covered mainly, and predominantly trade back then, um, and, uh, and contained also a preferential treatment uh, opportunity, which meant that the goods exchanged between the parties were uh, subjected to no duties or lower duties than what the normal uh, tariff uh, would be. And uh, <coughs> the problem of the, of the agreement back then was that the problem or how the agreement was structured, it didn't distinguish between Israel and the territories it conquered after uh, and occupied after 1967. And so Israel, because of its internal and domestic law, was applying this agreement also to the Israeli settlements and to the export to, uh, to Europe. And, uh, and what happened is that these NGOs started to raise the issue and saying, here we have a problem because you are applying these agreements or these agreements is applied by Israel also to the territories, which <coughs> is against your R1 um, obligations under international law, but also it's against your R1 regulation because in the 80s, the European Union had um, issued a regulation saying that uh, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights constitute a separate costume uh, union and a separate um, entity for trade with the European Union. <coughs> so they raised this, uh, this NGO raised this issue and started meeting a lot of officials and starting and started dealing with uh, and presenting this problem. So, and that's what I called, it started to create cognitive uncertainty in the sense that it started to present a problem that it was not there before. And it started to say, okay, but here we have a problem. You need to act upon that. But in the 90s, uh, early 2000s, this was not enough. Uh, policymakers, and that's what they told me, many, many found that too technical. Uh, some of them were not really convinced and, um, and so what happened is that in 2005 they, they reached a technical arrangement and said um, so the, the goods need to be exported with a postcode so that our customs authority can distinguish between the goods produced in Israel as internationally rec uh, recognized and the settlement. But this NGO didn't stop and it continued presenting this problem and it also started also opening it to other issues where you had this territorial uh, component. And in, at the end, in 2009, 2010, around these years, there, there was what I call this opening of a policy windows in the sense that there was the Gaza war and so this also changed a lot the mood uh, in the European Union. Uh, Netanyahu... Uh, uh, new government and uh, his policy were not stopping the settlements but they were continuing the construction of the settlements and uh, the European Parliament also started to become um, quite vocal <coughs> about 
the issue of, uh, of settlements. And these, together with this cognitive uncertainty that was generated over the decades, um, led to, uh, to new demands from policymakers that they were trying to understand how they could interpret EU-Israel relation, still keeping the relation with Israel and deepening it, but at the same time ensuring that they were not infringing their own legislation and their commitment under uh, international law. And that's where, wh what I see leading to this new frame and then to this new policy, so to this idea that we, um, we keep the relationship, we strengthen this relationship, but we do that within the limit of this, the legal possibilities that we have. And... Uh, mm, um, yeah, and, uh, and basically ensuring that uh, law is respected and that we as a community of law, we as European Union, don't, um, don't disregard these, uh, these aspects. So this is a very um, short <laughs> version of, of the story. Um, and uh, yeah, and so this is basically the, the big pictures that I studied, so how these framing processes happen in, in that specific uh, case. Um, and then um, now I, I moved a bit farther and I'm working on, on that. And this look a bit at the issue of networks and entrepreneurs because here we see this idea of an NGO acting as a frame entrepreneur. Um, but then, of course, the question is where does this agency come about? How can agent pr produce also this structural change? And, and of course, the literature, the literature on policy entrepreneurs is also not always clear about that. And that's where I think that, the, um, that combining that with the idea of networks could help. Why? Because networks can provide this, this structure that helps us to, to, to see these processes of framing, uh, how these actors are linked, but also networks assume that so, some mm, structural position in the network, so some position in this series of links, gives a structural advantage to certain actors to, to act because they c uh, control information, because they are central to these flows of, of information, and, mm, and, uh, and therefore they might decide to act upon this structural advantage that can lead to create... Uh, change. Um, but linked to that and to this idea of political entrepreneurship, I was also asking myself, um, in line also with some of the literature in public policy, whether it makes sense maybe to distinguish different types of entrepreneurs. As I said, I used the, the name frame entrepreneur because the actor I identify was not, um, is not officially part of any decision-making process. So it acted, if you want, at more the, what you could call maybe the agenda setting uh, state. But then, then my question was, but then why the guidelines, why this frame was translated and codified in that specific form and shape of, of policy? And then here my question would be, maybe there was another entrepreneur in this network that activated the, the, the policy formulation in, and the form that it, uh, and it took and maybe mediated between also different interests, institutional interests, member state interests, etc. So that's why I'm also thinking now, does it, is it worth analytically distinguishing and what different features different uh, entrepreneurs might have at different stages of the policy uh, making process? And, uh, and finally, that was, uh, it's a final point that is really 
an idea that uh, was discussed with some of my colleagues <laughs> about loving and framing as practice. And so I'm looking at the common doings between, between actors and looking at how, for example, maybe lobbying and framing happens when these people share a common endeavor. And so give a different perspective on lobbying, which is not the, what is mainly assuming in the literature a more rational choice perspective. So I lobby you, you, you decide to receive it or not, uh, and that's it. But looking when a common endeavor develops, also a common understanding, and then produce these new, uh, new frames. I think I will stop here. And um, and I'm happy to develop further if there are questions.